Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. Two weeks from Election Day, we are today. And are we uh, in a position now where it's about the composition of the electorate? It's no longer about persuasion. People have made up their minds, and it's just a question of who shows up between now and including Election Day. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could always reach us on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Well, my so my mind's made up, and I'm sure your mind's made up. Well, yeah, yeah. Nothing know. could nothing could happen that changed my mind. But uh, in your, within your circles of influence, uh, your relationships, uh, is that what you sense is the case? Interesting piece in the Nation, which is a left wing rag. Biden needs to stop talk, stop talking about the economy, particularly about particularly boasting about it. So over the weekend, you heard. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Donna Brazil and others. It's not just about Dobbs. It's not just about Jim Crow 2.0 and uh, the other issues we demagogue. Of course, it's about the economy. Of course, it's about the economy. And uh, it, that's important. And we have a record of accomplishment on that. Well, Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster for the Dems, longtime pollster for the Dems, says uh, what you heard last week from Joe Biden during his a scheduled ice cream break is the worst possible message for Democrats. You remember. Yes, uh, our economy is playing as hell. The internal. Inflation is worldwide. It's worse off everywhere else in the United States. So the problem is the lack of economic growth, sound policy in other countries, not so much ours. And that's a worldwide inflation. It's consequential. The economy's strong as hell, and the only problem we have is the uh, worldwide inflation. Worldwide inflation. Well, inflation's worldwide. The only problem we have is the uh, policies and the performance of other nations. Uh, Stanley Greenberg speaking to Politico. It's our worst performing message. I've tested it. I did Biden's exact words, his exact speech, and that's the test where we lost all of our leads. It said to the voters, this election is about my accomplishments as a leader and not about the challenges you're experiencing. Greenberg adding that the GOP hitting us on crime and border and inflation, that has huge power, and we have the self-satisfied message of how much we've accomplished rather than being focused on what's happening to people. So uh, when you hear uh, Biden and others, including so many in Illinois, including our governor, boasting about their performance, boasting about their accomplishments, J.B. Prisker, I mean, I, I read this, and I can't help think of J.B. Pritzker's, you know, we went from 50th in the nation to 50th in the nation in our credit rating, and that's an accomplishment. That's a real turnaround artist. 
So when they're speaking that way, encourage them because all they're doing is amplifying their tone deafness, according to Stanley Greenberg. My favorite is Herschel Walker. They, um, Ralph Warnock, by the way, would not sit down with NBC. He refused to for some reason because he's going to be a Biden and campaign in his basement. Herschel Walker was asked this, a similar question, Dan. Can you name one thing that President Biden has done that you support? One thing that he's done that I support. Mm. <sighs> he eat a lot of ice cream. Take a minute and think about <laughs> it. Oh, Is geez. there one uh, thing? It's going to be a while. Well, you know, I agree with one thing, but he didn't do it. When he said he'll be a unifier, we saw that he wasn't that. He called uh, the opposite side names. Yeah, but that's sort of the other side of the coin. Uh, this is not about what Biden did or didn't do at this point. People are well aware of it. This is the, in part, the takeaway from Stanley Greenberg. Don't tout accomplishments that you don't actually possess, that you have had actually achieved. And so it's the same thing. What, what's one thing that uh, Biden did I support? This isn't about Biden. This is about his policy choices and the policy choices of the left generally from the federal all the way to the local, they're the same policy choices. They're the same policy choices that our friends in Western Europe made, too, which is why we're on the cusp of a global recession. And people's quality of life is being negatively impacted. Their purchasing power, correspondingly, is being negatively impacted. And we have to make a policy course correction on behalf of middle-income families who are feeling pinched, even though they've done everything that they're supposed to do. They were told to do. They play by the rules. That seems to me where Republicans need to be. In addition to, and the, you know, that's the economic security. In addition to the personal safety piece, uh, Greenberg is right, and the polling bears this out. Not only his, when he talks about the ICE issues, uh, immigr- you know, the, essentially immigration, crime, and the economy. The ICE issues. Uh, so. That 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 is the center cut for this election as much as the left wants to make it about the Dobbs decision. There was interesting, too, to note what the generic ballot is between Republicans and Democrats. Right after the Dobbs decision, it was a little under two percent advantage. The generic ballot. Would you rather have Republicans in control of Congress than Democrats? And today it's three percent. So this is where turnout becomes interesting. If the Dobbs decision really hasn't moved the needle significantly for the left, then they're right that it is going to necessarily be a composition election, not a persuasion election. It's not a bunch of people coming over from one side to the other necessarily, although independents are breaking for the party out of power as they normally do, so Republicans. Um, it's it's a composition election. Can you generate a massive turnout of your brethren to make up for the fact that you've lost the electorate as it is normally comprised in a normal turnout midterm election? You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, interesting, too, because one thing um, – we've noted before is on early voting and um, how the left can pile up big leads with early voting and then, you know, hold on to those leads. Or you can see the vote count. You're up, up, up on Election Day and you think you've got this thing in the bag. And then here come the early votes and they 
they swamp yep. your candidate, as we saw in a number of states with Trump. Uh, you know, all the necessary caveats there. But I wish I, we I could ask... just go back old school and just have an election day. I mean, same no, with I... trick or treating. Have you noticed? Totally like, used... Trick or treating used to just be on Halloween, and it didn't matter if it was a Monday or a Tuesday or a Friday or a Sunday. But now it's like, trick or treating month. Every, like, come come to this festival, trick or treat. I mean, I just it's the same thing. Well, it's interesting. On the early voting piece, um, I asked a Democrat consultant friend of mine about this. Yeah. Um, why does he think that Dems dominate early voting? I mean, because if you look at the splits that I've seen for early voting right now, uh, it's like three to one Dem to Republican. I'm talking about Illinois. Right. Um, he. Uh, texted me back don't know if i've been asked that question but my answer is that democrats have been taught by their leaders to believe that early voting is one of the best ways you can show you're a democrat since 2020 has taken on a whole new acceptability because of the covid protocols some traditional democrats like me are like wow or voting early is not a sin um so they're they're you know this is somebody who was involved in democrat races uh, races for democrats so it's interesting that there was this and it's worth noting that there was this sort of formal play right. where and push for early voting. And, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I'm in the same camp as you are. We should do what France does, which is national election, single day, well, make it a holiday. It is a holiday Everybody for votes. CPS. I mean, we don't have school on Election Day. They took, you know, Veterans Day or Armistice Day, whatever, you know. And changed it. Now that day is going to be on election day so everybody can go vote. Well, why? If most of your Democratic Party and Reverend already voted, why do we need to have a holiday? So and our anyway, kids stay home from school. So anyway, if we can't get that done, yeah. you know, you have to operate on the landscape that you're given. Um, there is a, a longer play and an important conversation that has to be had in Republican ranks if we're going to make, you know, elections six-month affairs, basically. <laughs> certainly three-month affairs, yeah. seriously, in a lot of states, then you've got to do a better job on the front end because these, these late-breaking stories and late-breaking decision-makers may not be enough if you're not turning out your people in sufficient numbers. That early voting advantage is sort of under-discussed on the R side, and it needs to be addressed. Because a lot of them happen, too, before debates. Like, think about DeSantis had his first gubernatorial debate, and people in Illinois could vote before the second debate. Yeah, that's you know, right. And I think that's important. And then, you know, yesterday, Pritzker with Julie Stratton and Randy Weingarten, it, it went out, you know, they were in Chicago, then they flew to Peoria. Nobody was at the Peoria event. Nobody was there. Nobody cares. Jim and Sheboygan, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, so I agree with you, Dan. Um, Republicans got to change their strategy. I mean, what the Democrats do is they get their votes out early. They watch the, they watch the uh, votes roll in, and then what they do is if their voters haven't voted, they contact them again and make sure they get them out. So Republicans got to start voting early on in the mm -hmm. process, just like the Dems. You know, one thing, I'm going to be a poll watcher this year in Milwaukee because I want to learn more about what actually happens. And, you know, people got to get involved. I'm, I'm doing it this year. I'm going to learn. Um, one of the things that's really amazing is, is the Democrats had sued the Republican National Committee. And up until 2018, there was a consent decree against them. I didn't even know that. Um, anyway, Republicans got up their game. Thanks for the call, Jim. 
There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, so, as I mentioned, Nicole Wallace, who's one of these uh, fungible talkers on MSNBC, makes um, Larry O'Donnell look like an Einstein. (laughs) This is the question that she put to Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes, Democrat, about uh, ballot security and and, uh, generally ensuring the integrity of the upcoming midterm elections. But if you read through the papers this weekend, the threats to our elections in, what, two and a half weeks are so pervasive and they're so dire and they include violence. I mean, do you think it's time to ask for friends and allies to come over and help us monitor our elections? We used to do that in other burgeoning and threatened democracies. Um, oh my God. <laughs> even Jim Himes uh, had to laugh that one off. Couldn't uh, support the idea of bringing over our friends from, <laughs> from Russia, uh, <laughs> Germany. I mean, well, she, our allies. But yeah, okay, know, but let's get to our Germany, Britain, France. You want uh, foreign nationals, uh, representatives of foreign governments to the, come monitor our elections? I, I thought this French was Army. the. I thought those were the people that were worried about uh, foreign intervention in our elections. Now Nicole Wallace wants us to invite them over. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. But I'll tell you what, I'm willing to strike a deal with Nicole Wallace. Okay, what do you want? And it goes back to what we were talking about before the break. Um, We'll bring French election observers over if we get the French election system. And I don't mean their form of government. I mean, here's how France does it. Voters make their choices in a booth with curtains closed, then place their paper ballot in an envelope that is then put into a transparent ballot box. They must show photo identification and sign a document next to their name to complete the process. There is one day of voting. There is no absentee voting. There is no early voting. So uh, I'll go back to that in a heartbeat. Bring in your French observers as long as we get uh, the system that France uses to select their leaders. What do you think? 
I mean, how did early voting, you know, like our absentee ballot voting turn into three month long early voting? I, I don't and It's all because of COVID, don't you think? I mean, that perpetuated it. Well, we were already doing this and there was already already always a push to ex- extend early voting back and, um, and uh, you know, f- no excuse absentee ballot voting and so forth. Uh, there were states experimenting with all mail in uh, elections like in Oregon. So the left has always been wanting to make voting, quote unquote, easier, more convenient. Uh, and if you oppose any such convenience enhancer, then you're against people voting. You're trying to disenfranchise the marginalized and so on and so forth. And no, not really any more than they're trying to do so in France. Yeah, but we have online have a, voting here, too, in Illinois. I can't stand that. You're you're. you're tr- what? We have online, online voting. Yeah, you, there's, you can online vote in Illinois. The deadline was last night. You had to register. I'll send you the email that I got from J.B. Pritzker's campaign because I'm signed up to that. So, I mean, that's what they want. Eventually, people just can stay at home and vote online. It's ridiculous. And so, and so right. And so the, the general point here, of course, is about security issues and, frankly, taking the franchise seriously enough to – Make the Herculean effort to show up on a, a single day to vote for the leaders of your country and state. Um, I, you know, the, is that the price? That's that's that that's too high a citizenship price. I don't think so. And and of course, yes, you make accommodations for military serving overseas mm-hmm. or people that are disabled. You can make legitimate. You can have absentee ballot voting, how it was originally conceived. Legitimate reasons that you can't vote in the jurisdiction in which you live but this you know weeks uh, or and, and now months of early voting and the preemptory mailing out of ballots and so forth i mean this is compromising faith in our elections in addition to uh potentially compromising the accuracy of elections but you know if you, if you your populace loses faith in the system uh, by which we organize our government and thus our society, th- then then you got a problem. You want to talk about a real threat to democracy. It's the disintegration of all of our cultural and civic institutions, including, frankly, in many states, the administration of elections. So, oh, okay, Nicole Wallace, I'm glad you opened uh, up this conversation. I'm happy to happy to have it. Um, we were talking as well about debates and. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, Amy, uh, Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist had their first debate last night. And uh, there was a really interesting moment where DeSantis uh, took up the issue of shutdowns because uh, I didn't know this. Um, probably a lot of Floridians didn't know this. Charlie Crist sent him a letter. Mm-hmm. 2020. During uh, uh. the height of the zeitgeist for lockdowns. And it just provided a nice contrast to understand who made what decision in the moment when it mattered. You mentioned, Liz, that people are flocking to Florida. That would not have happened if Charlie Chris had his way. He wrote me a letter in July of 2020 saying you need to shut down the state of Florida. He said you need to force people to shelter in their own homes. That would have destroyed the state of Florida. That would have caused... That would have caused our tourism industry to go into the toilet. It would have locked out millions of kids 
from school. I rejected Charlie Chris's lockdown letter. I kept this state open and I kept this state free. And we now have the biggest budget surplus in the history of Florida. Uh, we have a 2.5% unemployment, governor, second lowest time. on record, and we just did the biggest tax cut in Florida Thank history. Thank you, Governor. That's time. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things that just gets very difficult to argue, very difficult to undermine. You can talk all you want about COVIDian policy and tax policy and border security and who's right and who's wrong. And when you see the sort of migration away from California, New York, and mm-hmm. Illinois, and the migration to places like Tennessee, Texas, and Florida, I mean, that is the, that is the greatest uh, indication of success that you can have. People choosing to cast their future in your state the state where you're the, 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 the executive. There, there's no bigger compliment, and frankly, when it comes to Hochul, Pritzker, and Newsom, there's no bigger indictment, is there? And I, I love, too, when Charlie Chris went after him for you know abortion rights, and he said, whoa, 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 you used to be a Republican. You were one of the most pro-life Republicans, and then you changed party, and now you don't want limits on abortion. It was really good. I thought DeSantis, uh, I mean, it was fiery, and the, I love that the audience was involved. You know, nothing like we would have here in Illinois, because God forbid we had something real where people real time reaction. Um, but I thought DeSantis did a great job. Uh, by the way, uh, the hits just keep coming on the lockdown and the carnage. The school lockdown catastrophe uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal about those NAEP scores. The NAEP scores that measure you know grade level proficiency in reading and math that we've talked a lot about on this show because they're so bad in Illinois and they've gotten worse in every state, uh, precipitously worse for minority students in Chicago and in Illinois. Uh, the pandemic lockdowns were a policy blunder for the ages, and the economic, social, and health consequences are still playing out. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial board opining. But the worst catastrophe was visited on America's children, as the release yesterday of the NAEP scores indicate. Record drop in learning across the U.S. since the last test in 2019. Uh, Eighth graders lost eight points on math since 2019. Fourth graders lost five points on average. Not a single state or large school district showed better math performance. The only state that stayed the same was Utah. In the whole country, that's it. The, and the average score for fourth graders and eighth graders on reading dropped by three points. Nationwide, only one in three fourth graders and a little less than one in three eighth graders read at or above grade proficiency. And the well, problem I, is, is that teachers keep advancing them up, even though they should have held them back. Every the student pro- should have been held back a year. The other problem is when we get into the silly season of these elections, we have... Uh, oftentimes both Democrats and Republicans arguing about who's more committed to K-12 through education as so indicated by their willingness to spend more money on K-12 through education. And so we spend more money, as we have in Illinois, exponentially more than we've seen in student growth. The growth in spending versus student growth, exponentially more is the growth in spending. But but as long as you're spending more than your pro-education, even if you're seeing diminished results— even if you're seeing these very disturbing results. Uh, we got to get a lot more serious. 
But unfortunately, as more and more generations go through our government schools, we have more and more people who don't have the intellectual capacity to get more serious because they can't read or do math. And no, we had the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, in our state, and no reporters even asked her about this result because she was the one that was pushing this bull jive for years. And and of course now can't teach from the grave. Ooh. Now the big right, and now the really big discussion good. is about whether or not states, because it's a state decision, will mandate the COVID jab as part of the vaccine right. schedule to go to a government school. Oh, and by the way. Uh, Katie Hobbs was asked about that. Katie uh, Hobbs, who's the Democrat socialist for governor in Arizona. Currently their secretary of state, who's been sued twice because she played a black woman on her staff, $30,000 less than a white man. Okay. That's one of um, the K- K- Katie Hobbs, um, yeah, secretary of state, so she has the responsibility for administering the election. Oh, right. That's interesting. Um, anyway, she's been pressed. She won't debate. She won't even go as far as Charlie Crist will and actually debate the uh, their opponent, although as the challenger, it's a little more pressing. Katie Hobbs is being pressed, even by the network uh, newsreaders, right. about her unwillingness to debate. ABC pressed her on this. This is how that went. Confirm Why not challenge her, though, in, in a public forum? I'm just curious. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, the debate about debates is over. I'm running my campaign the way I'm running my campaign. I'm going to continue to make the case directly to voters. The the case you make to them, and not to to belabor that point, is they they do. They they are tough times for a lot of folks. We talk about the economy, inflation, and I know there's a rising cost of living here. Uh, People are putting somebody in that office that they want to stand up for them and fight Mm -hmm. for them. At worst, it could come off as you're scared to step on that stage. And... At best, you're not willing to confront. We're in a new era where, where sometimes some politicians are seen as bullies. And we've been taught since we were little kids, you got to stand up to a bully. You won't, you, you understand how that might come across. How do you make a case? We want to send you to fight for us, but you won't even step I, on stage with I it. I have stood up to this bully for the past two years, uh, and that's, and Arizonans have seen that, and I'm going to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. All right. well, I want to talk about some of the. Yeah. It's standing uh, up by sitting down and shutting up and not even going on stage with her. It's ridiculous. Here's uh, here's maybe why she won't debate. She was asked this weekend about her view as a potential governor on mandating the COVID vax as part of the vaccine schedule for kids to go to school. Would you allow the COVID vaccine to go on the vaccine schedule for children to attend school? Uh, is that... I, I, is, Sorry, so the CDC oh. is... Um, sort of moving toward adding the, the COVID vaccine to the recommendation for, um, you know, school vaccines. It's up to the states to actually decide what's on that list for in their state. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, would your Department of Health Services put the COVID vaccine on the list of required vaccines for, for children in school? Uh, that is not something I have contemplated, so, yeah. Oh, my God. It's like the reporter has to explain to her what's going on. Uh, Oof, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, have so you you're not familiar with the uh debates and arguments we've been having for the last uh a year and a half about uh vaccine mandates particularly mm. for kids to go to school katie hobbs the secretary of state of arizona the devon socialist <laughs> me for she's not heard about these discussions <laughs> well at least the reporter got to her reporters can't even get to pritzker because they whisk him out of rooms and and make sure that he's isolated so nobody could even ask him the question and it's not about mandating vaccines yes yeah. uh no, no idea. No, I, no clue. They haven't contemplated. I don't doubt about that. I have not <laughs> contemplated that issue. Really? 
Well, it sounds like she's just hearing about it for the first time. Yeah. No, what did you know, say? What? Obviously, it's the same thing that Jelly Belly's doing as he's ducking, and that's oh, no ducking. easy feat. Uh, right. I don't want to take a position on it, but. Until after the election. <laughs> um, gosh. Yeah, boy, that's a new one. Okay. And we have a lot of Arizonans who live six months in one day in Arizona, and they're all going back right now. And before you just remember that comment from Katie Hobbs and it's remember be, how she's afraid to go on stage and fight Carrie Lake. It's going to be very interesting. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis, uh, he's going to win re-election going away in Florida. And I think Carrie Lake is going to win in Arizona, maybe going away as well. And Carrie Lake and Ron DeSantis. Um, That'd be a dynamic duo. And she's uh, from Iowa and a farmer, youngest of nine girl, nine kids. I, I like that's a that's a that's some that's some real fight in the uh, Republican ranks, like we haven't seen in a while. David and Winnetka, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey guys, good morning. Uh, two points if I can make. Uh, Dan, the point you made earlier about uh, you know people leaving other states and going to Florida places is it speaks for itself absolutely um the thing that uh, kind of sucks about that is that y- you really shouldn't be allowed to leave the blue state that you made you know a dump and then run over to somewhere else i don't even want to breathe the same air and right. the second thing i just out there um i don't know if you know what's going on in lake forest if you heard but uh, they're busing from a couple different places now the school administration is pretending that they don't know anything of this and that the thing that's bad is that these kids are coming in, they're violent, they're, they're beating up the other white kids in droves, they're having massive fights with each other. I have footage of all that stuff. I just wanted to get it over to your screener if I could. Sure. Yeah, send it to send it to Quinn. He'll get it he'll get it to us. Thanks for the call, David. Appreciate it. Uh Craig, Mount Greenwood. Oh hey, uh, good morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, thanks for taking my call, Dan. You know what's sick about the whole thing with this uh the kids uh education and how bad they're doing. Now the left doesn't want any of us to realize it or know what's going on, but it's a it's a big win for them. They love to have these kids dumbed down. Here, you're talking about this Katie Hobbs. They're, they want, that's the way those people operate. They're, they're, they're stupid and dumb and everything, and the left loves stupidity and dumb because they, that's how they control the masses. So, yeah, what, they're, they're not going to really legitimately be trying to do anything to improve or get kids into school more. They're going to try to figure out more ways to keep kids out of school but not get caught. That's that's what it's all about. Well, they need the thanks for the call, Craig. They need the kids in school because that's where the indoctrination occurs. Yep. So they want them in school. They're just not so concerned about uh, the three R's as they are about transgenderism and uh, critical race theory and the like. It was remarkable to see Randy Weingarten in town, oh and to uh, you know have this just be. Uh, you know, covered from the perspective of the candidate, just basically regurgitating the press release as what I saw in terms of the media coverage of Weingarten's uh, presence here. She was stomping her feet. It was it was bizarre. What we have to do, it, oh. the current and the next governor of the state of Illinois. Uh, and there's a no. smattering. Literally, nobody was there, Dan. I looked at the crowd size and. Like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. That says a lot. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that 
You don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So President Biden has been talking about uh, his student loan forgiveness or the socialization of student debt which is a more accurate description uh, over the last couple of days because the subject of litigation, of course, and Pellicourt has enjoined its implementation for the moment. And um, Biden had an interesting comparison. I want to bump this up against what people think. Uh, let's hear Biden cut two. The program we allowed people, the PPP program, to get money back if their business were in trouble. Well, you have... I think it's four or five Republicans were published in the, in the, in the print, in the paper, who range got from $2.1 million relief to $187 million, I forget the exact number. For, uh, and they made no apologies for that. They thought it's okay for them to get that relief for their business. But you breaking your neck and getting caught in the middle of a crisis, you can't get any relief for the debt. And guess who's going to grow the economy more? An educated public or those guys? <laughs> Folks, look. Uh-huh. And he's whispering again. 312 642 Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, who's going to grow the economy more? Um, a owner and operator of a business, a legitimate business, or somebody who has $80,000 in student loan debt pursuing an art history degree. Hmm. Yeah, that is a real <laughs> conundrum. But um, uh, the more the more interesting thing, first and foremost, is that right? If you got PPP money, that's the same thing as having your student loan debt paid for by someone else, everybody else? Is that Are those two things parallels? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Debt Pro Mutual Line six four six three six DA Turnkey Debt Pro Tax Line. They're absolutely not the same. I mean, PPP loans were given because the government shut us down. Student loans—that's your self responsibility. You signed up for that. I mean, I had to work two jobs to pay off my student loans, and the day that I finally wrote the last check, I was elated. But I didn't. I felt a sense of accomplishment. Now we're just erasing all the lines. And you know, how do you learn self responsibility when you could just suck on the government? to pay off any debt that you have. And I, I, can't, I can't see how we can compare it to the PPP loan. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, you shut down my business. I didn't shut down my business. Right, you forced me. You shut me. it down. Yep. 
And now, not only do you shut down my business, and then then that's a taking. So, you know, under the Constitution, I need to be compensated for a government taking. And then, right, the choice I made. Now I got to pay somebody else's student loan on top of it for the choices they made. So I didn't have a choice to. I didn't have a choice in terms of this guy or gal taking out a, a loan to go to Exeter. I mean, to, to, to you know, to go to whatever one of the seven sisters to get that art history degree, Mount Holyoke, and I didn't have a choice when you came and shut down my business. So, I, I, where where is that? In what universe is that a parallel situation? They're the they're they're, they're precise opposites. Um. And let's remember what we're talking about here, too. So it's $20,000, and this is just for now, right, because there are, of course, grander schemes afoot from Comrade Bernie and from Biden. But this is what he did for now. $20,000 of forgiveness if you've got a Pell Grant. Why? Because Pell Grants used to cover 80% on average of the cost of college, and now they only cover 60%. And whose fault is that? Well, it's the same people that are socializing your student loan debt because we've subsidized college tuition. So we subsidize college tuition to jack so that colleges can jack tuition uh, oh, yeah. prices, which they've done. And then on the back end, we socialize the costs of the subsidies that we impose that have raised tuition. I mean, it's really marvelous. So there's so it's twenty thousand for Pell Grant and then ten thousand for everybody else, and that's just the opener. By the way, um, Joe Biden doesn't even exactly know how this happened. He sort of has a, a stylized memory of this being some sort of floor fight in the House and Senate. Play Biden three. The other piece what we're trying to do is you probably are aware I've just signed a law that's being challenged by my Republican colleagues. The same people who got PPP loans during the for up to close to, in some cases up to five six hundred thousand dollars they have no problem with that the individuals in Congress got those but um, what we've provided for is if you went to school if you qualify for a Pell Grant you qualify for two thousand I mean excuse me uh, you, you qualify for twenty thousand dollars in debt forgiveness. Secondly, if you don't have one of those loans, you just get 10000 written off. It's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two, and it's in effect. And already a total of, I think it's now, 13 million people have applied for that service. Um, it's an executive order. Right. It wasn't passed by anybody. No. Then that's the problem, and that's why there's lawsuits. Just stop it. Three. Well, that's that's one one of the problems. The other problem is that he doesn't remember that this was an executive right. order that he issued. <laughs> Which means it makes me think other people are uh, telling him just this is going to be an executive order that you're going to issue. Somebody else is running Something the else show. Too, just, just in terms of the, you know, Biden the fabulous, just making stuff up as these so many of these policies want to do. So it's the same talking point you heard him play out there in two different venues. And the, the first one some Republican, non-named Republican businesses got $2 million and $187 million in PPP loans. In this example, these other fictional Republicans got up to five or $600,000 in PPP loans. 
can anybody give us any of those fictional businesses uh, so that we could do a little fact check? Any, anybody in the DC press corps interested in any of this or uh, even just fact checking the fact that it was not legislation, it was an executive order. Any, where, where, where are the fact checkers? Where, where the, where's the Washington Post fact checker when you need it? Where's the, the BGA and all these other fact checkers? that make sure that politicians are held to account for saying things that are correct. Remarkable. Unbelievable. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Let's go to John in Naperville. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. No, what they're they're not mentioning is that as part of the PPP forgiveness, you had to show a loss due to COVID, and you also had to show that you did not uh, lay off any employees to keep them off of uh, unemployment. Nobody's talking about that now, are they? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and and also nobody's talking about, in terms of the PPP, too, the amount of fraud that uh, seems to have been committed and what we're going to do in terms of clawing back money that was illicitly distributed by, well, by the federal government through banks that were perhaps not as... Uh, diligent as they should have been at, in pre-qualifying some of their PPP applicants. But anyway, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's at least some accountability for the business owner that is operating on the level. And, um, you know, I mean, there's no accountability other than this idea that I had some sort of hardship or I didn't, since I, since I'm, you know, in the two and three who can't do eighth grade math at eighth grade level, right. by the time I get to college, I, don't really have an appreciation for the kind of debt I'm accumulating and what the potential return on investment is going to be. So, so then it's time for everybody else to pick up my tab. But you don't have that to show hardship. You just have to fill out a form. And all the Democrats are pushing this well, right, form. Sign right. us out. And it just no, that's right. But right. I mean, Biden's saying, you know, you got caught in something. What did you get caught in? No, you signed up for it. And you've got to pay your own debt. That's how you grow up. And I don't want to pay my son's college and soon to be my other son's college, and then pay off all of your student loans. Well, but, but the thing is, he's, he's comparing, he's saying, uh, we shut down your business, that's like shutting down the college campus, and thus you were caught in this in a way that d- deserves some remuneration. Well, um, then all the taxpayers should get funding back from the K-12 through school systems that they pay for when those schools were closed, too, by that logic. When's that happening? Oh, by the way, speaking of COVID and money and money for K through 12, Washington Post, Amazon Post, uh, you know, left wing outlet. Ooh, uncomfortable truth. Maybe this requires some more soda voce from Biden. Um, some 50 uh, of something like 15 percent of the 120 billion dollars allocated for K through 12 education you know, to somehow marshal through COVID with whatever HEPA filters and the like. Fifteen percent of it's been spent so far. That's it. What are they waiting 15%. for? Fifteen percent. Well, I thought they it's were just, spending it all on PPE and HEPA filters and cleaning out. You know, having the janitors come in in between classes. Money's fungible. Money's fungible. And what kind of accountability? I'd, I'd be very interested to compare and contrast the accountability that government institutions have at the state and local level to the federal government. What kind of accountability is imposed as compared to the accountability imposed by private businesses who got PPP funding? That'd be very interesting comparison contrast as well. Let's go to Will and Skokie. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. 
Good morning, guys. How you doing? Um, yeah, both my daughters went military and paid for their own college. My my one uh, finished uh, college and law school, and the other one uh, is still in the military, Navy, and she's working on her doctorate now. But, um, you know, the thing here is it's like the takings clause. If someone, I don't know which which host said it, but if someone drives an F-150 through the front of your house, they're supposed to pay for the damage. The government damaged people, uh, people individually and companies specifically, even including my company, so they should pay for it. It's just part of the takings clause. And, um, you know, this the thing you're seeing with Biden is the guy, he's just, I don't know why anybody even pays attention to him. He's a puppet. He's being he's being animated by his party and a lot of uh, Obama handle, hangovers, and uh, they're just... They're just playing us, you know. It's amazing. Anyway, have a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks, Will. Well, I mean, they listen to him because, you know, he's got the pen and the phone to borrow a favorite phrase of Obama's. And so who, whether his strings are getting pulled or not is sort of secondary. I mean, yeah, obviously the people around him, have, which are all holdovers from the Obama terms one and two, have influence and perhaps vast decision-making power, but um, he's the guy that everybody elected. He's the guy who signs the executive orders, so you got to pay attention to him, even if doing so is painful. Because <laughs> he's back to whispering. Did you hear him yesterday? He was whispering. He had an event yesterday afternoon. If I could wave a wand, I'd cure cancer. Why? Because no one believes it can be done. But we're starting to do it. There's nothing beyond our capacity. I mean it. Not a joke. Not a joke. And the people he's talking to, they're looking at him like he's insane. Why are you whispering? We're in a, you know, a private event. He's lost his I mind. I thought that was supposed to be solved by the end of oh, Obama right. term two, the cancer thing. But, you know, it's interesting you said that nothing is beyond our capacity. I know that's supposed to be an aspirational statement, but I think it's an accidental tell. I mean, these are people who want to create heaven on earth. And so that's what they really think. They can uh, bend Mother Nature to their will. They can suspend the laws of yep. economics. They can cure kids. So nothing land. is beyond their capacity, except competence. That's the only thing. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So violent crime continues to dominate the discussion in key state and federal races with two weeks to go before Election Day. You had a new study come off from WalletHub yesterday looking at the 50 most populous cities in America and there has been a 10% spike in the third quarter of this year as compared to the third quarter of last year in murders. These are in the top 10, top 50. I mean, almost all uh, are Democrat run cities, the top 10, all Democrat run cities. Of course they are. Top 10 in murder per capita, quarter, third quarter over third quarter, 2022 over 2021. Cities like St. Louis, New Orleans, Memphis, Norfolk, Chicago, 
What do they have in common? Democrat identitarian, Democrat mayors, and in, particularly for the top 10, Soros-funded prosecutors, you know, like we support in Cook County with Kim Fox. And yesterday we had a shooting in broad daylight right outside the Greyhound bus station. And witnesses, I mean, it was so nonchalant, like, yeah, you know, he was shot in the head a few times. That was real sad. I mean, because he had a whole lot of shots in his head. Gunshots in his head. I mean, and just, you know, people tried to do compressions and help out. They kept trying to do uh, compressions on him. Um, so he wasn't dead yet. And then they took him to the hospital. It's just, you know, an everyday occurrence here, Dan. Let's move on. And so uh, New York State, the governor's race there. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember, this is a state that has featured governors over the last couple of decades, like Nicole Rings Gambino (laughs) and Andy Cuomo. Yes. He was going to be our vice president, don't you know? And Elliot Spitzer. Oh, Um, I mean, so, so, and then now Kathy Hochul, of course, who was Cuomo's LG. But um, that race is a dead heat now. She is in a dead heat, according to a couple of recent polls, with Lee Zeldin, the congressman from Long Island, Republican. And it's mainly, I, I think, I don't think it's arguably, it's mainly over the issue of violent crime. And it's being most punctuated uh, by the lawlessness in the New York City subway system as we see on the CTA lines in Chicago. Um, but Chicago, I think, is more broad than New York in terms of the crime problem, and certainly on a per capita basis, much more violent than New York. And yet, because of what's happened to Manhattan, because of the lawlessness, in part engendered, oh, by the way, by the Cuomo de Blasio no cash bail reform, quote unquote, law that was passed uh, a couple of years, a year and a half, two years ago. Now you have a dead heat for the governor's race there. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey depro answer line six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And even the candidate himself, Lee Zeldin, he was attacked uh, at a campaign stop, and then his there was a shooting right in front of his house where his girls had to run for cover. His daughters. Yeah, those that has certainly punctuated the crime problem, how close yeah. crime has come to the Republican nominee for governor, sitting member of Congress, and the press corps there, and the D.C. press corps associated with much, much of it, which resides in New York, has tried to downplay that as much as possible. I mean, had that been, uh, a, had it been Kathy Hochul or a Democrat member of Congress, this would we'd be hearing about, you know, right-wing violence and assassination attempts. But when somebody comes at Lee Zeldin with a knife because of his politics, we don't hear a, a similar chorus, of course. And when you have the sort of crime uh, rampant at a level where there's a shooting outside his well-appointed home in Long Island, um, try to dutifully ignore that as much as possible, too, because it's very much like what the suburbs, uh, what the press corps does vis-a-vis the suburbs here and what so many suburban residents do. Let's just pretend that's a city problem. Let's mm-hmm. just think about this as a west side, south side thing. I don't want to go to the city. I want to stay in my safe enclave in the western burbs or the northwest burbs or the northern burbs. Um, but the problem is those safe enclaves are increasingly not so safe. And the deterioration of safety is going to increase in pace under, yes, I'm beating the drum again, 
the Pritzker purge law. And there's an aspect of it that we've talked about with a couple of different prosecutors, both um, Weiss from Kendall County and Glasgow from Will County. But I want to punctuate it again. Interesting story in the AFL-CFO NPR Times from two years ago. The story done by Frank Maine, who actually was a pretty good uh, crime beat reporter. Criminal cases drag on for years as Cook County judges okay repeated delays. And it uh, features Tom Dart, the Cook County Sheriff, then and now, talk, examining some 900 cases of people that are were at the time housed in the Cook County Jail, over which he has authority, mostly on murder charges, and how they had been you know, languishing in jail for at least two years, the cases he looked at, uh, two years subsequent to criminal charges being filed. Why is that interesting? Well, because the Pritzker purge law requires 90 days, with, requires that prosecutors take individuals charged with offenses, take them to trial within 90 days. So, you know, we're talking about the non-detainable offenses a lot because they're so egregious, arson, kidnapping, and second-degree murder. But even in first-degree murder cases, if you don't get that individual to trial in 90 days, you cannot keep that individual in custody. That doesn't mean you can't still file charges against them, you can't still prosecute them, but you will have to bring, attempt to bring that individual back to court if you don't get him to trial in 90 days. And this is what Glasgow and Weiss and others are saying when they talk about that 90-day window. I just, to give you some context, uh, that story from a couple of years ago, it really, I think, punctuates it. This is what they're talking about. Everyone will demand we want to go to trial right away. So the 90 day clock starts to tick and you have prosecutors offices that don't have the resources, particularly when you're talking about many murder cases, which is the case in Will County and obviously Cook County. But I mean, it's not just Cook County, maybe the resources in other uh, counties that have unfortunately multiple capital cases at any given time, Winnebago County with Rockford, for example, Madison County with East St. or uh, St. Clair County with East St. Louis, for example, um, and Macon County with Decatur. I mean, I could go on and on. So the point is now there's a, a rush to get them to trial by their defense attorneys because they know 90 days and my guy gets a walk, he gets, he's released at least pending the prosecutor saying that we're now ready for trial. And what do we know about violent criminals? A significant percentage of them when they're released pending trial. They're repeat offenders. Right. Get out of jail free card. And 90 days, that's not a lot. You've got to gather evidence and it's, you know, it takes a lot. And then in Cook County, I mean, look at the Bridgeview Courthouse. They should have 10 to 12 prosecutors there, or Cook County State's attorneys, they have three. 
if they're lucky on a good day, maybe four. Well, and, and this is something else we talked about. I mean, under uh, under somebody like Kim Fox and under this law, you're going to have prosecutors demoralized in the same way that so many police are demoralized because they can't do the job they signed up to do, so they're going to leave. That's what's happening in Kim Fox's office, as we've talked about. Well, that's what will happen everywhere when how Kim Fox runs her office is the law of the state. That's what's, that's what's scaling. Every county prosecutor will essentially have to run the office the way Kim Fox does with respect to violent criminals. They're, they all become de, de facto Soros-funded prosecutors because of the statute. But that you know, 888 cases that were looked at just two years ago, two years ago this October, that story I'm referencing, I think. 888 cases, most of them murders, and all of them were there for two years pending trial because they were raising this issue of, you know, hey, people can't languish in jail forever. You've got to bring charge. And I agree with that. I absolutely agree. Me too. But to set an artificial 90-day clock, knowing that prosecutors don't have the resources to put together the kind of cases that they need to bring their best case forward against somebody that's been charged with a serious crime, a violent crime, and, you know, they're trying to do so simultaneous with, with many, many cases to jeopardize public safety in that way with that sort of arbitrariness is wildly problematic, or at least it should be understood to be so. And I'm not saying that judges with repeated delays and so that people are not, you know, essentially being abided their constitutional right to a speedy trial. Uh, that's fine. But this is, again case-by-case basis. Judges shouldn't defer too much to the prosecutor such that a defendant's criminal constitutional rights are being infringed upon. But this is something that you have to hash out in an adversarial process with prosecutor, defense attorney, and judge. It's not something that the legislature should mandate uh, one-size-fits-all without any sort of discretionary overrides statewide and this is what they've done three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in da then a quick comment let's go to pete in montgomery you're on chicago's morning answer good morning pete good morning dan good morning amy so this this 90 day release um or 90 day release for or go to trial if you actually follow through with that which i don't think is even physically possible is there enough time even for a, a defensive team to put together a sufficient defense in 90 days? Maybe there's, not. There's a, there's a, there's maybe, maybe not, but, but, but if I'm representing, if I have a defendant, I, I, you know, my defendant doesn't want to be in jail, and I don't want my defendant in jail. So I want that clock to start right away. Yep. I can always make an additional uh, uh, motion for extenuating circumstances in terms of preparation for trial, or I can always um, buy time, but at least my, I mean, I want my defendant, I want my client out of jail because he wants out of jail. Well, there, there is that, but, I'm, but uh, it would almost seem that the onus on the prosecutors to, to get to that trial and then pressure to get to that trial from public sources, for lack of a better term, may bring may bring more appeals 
to the system because they could not uh, provide that defense. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, like, I, I had insufficient counsel because they didn't uh, raise this issue, they didn't raise that issue, and it, yeah, it's an interesting point, yeah. If you feel like you didn't get um, a zealous representation because everybody is rushing to get to to the courthouse, the prosecutor on one side, the defense on the other for different reasons, and they get there and neither one has their is able to put their best foot forward because of the insufficient time if the case is a, is a complicated one with witness prep and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Robert in Bloomingdale, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, guys, how you doing this morning? Good. Good. Hey, Dan, first of all, nice work on those ads on TV. You know, I hope they strike a tone to get Bailey in there. But uh, the mm-hmm. reason I was calling, this is just the reason what's going on in New York, the crime, the crime going on in Chicago why you got to vote, get rid of Spalding once and for all, and hopefully make some changes. That's what I wanted to say. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Robert, for the phone call. Let's go to Roger on the south side. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Well, morning, my friends. Uh, what do you think all these prosecutors are going to do when uh, these um, self-defense shootings start racking up in 2023? Oh, you mean um, like vigilante justice type of, type of incidents? No, 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 no. I'm not being. Listen, people who live in the city, in what areas are still decent neighborhoods? Okay, even the moms are are armed now. Okay, I don't personally think that the bail thing is the biggest thing of that bill. What I think is the biggest thing is that the situations it's going to force people into by a lot of that stuff not being punishable by the right uh, statute as of what it was. They reduce these statutes on this stuff. You're going to have bedlam. I mean, look, look it, no, it I, take the to go off the rails in New York. No, I, I look, I agree. You're pretty, I mean, we talked about this as for in the trespass example uh, where that's not uh not a detainable offense. It's not even an offense. You get arrested, you get a ticket. And um, now you're putting people into situations of confrontation they don't want to be in. So, yeah. And and then, right. And then, and then you're going to be held responsible for the level of force you use if you feel compelled to use force to make sure it's proportional to the threat. And that's going to be reviewed by law enforcement. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's it's um, it's a recipe for bedlam is exactly what you said. Uh, Frank in Arlington Heights, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. Um, well, it's amazing how some of these, these Democrats and these hypocrites discovered the idea of a speedy trial now with some of the other stuff going on in this country. But I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, I still have no idea how this is constitutional. I know we have 58 of the different DAs have uh, consolidated their case, and it's going to be heard in Kankakee County. Um I really wonder, Dan, how you think that's going to go. I think that uh, I don't think there's any way a court could look at this law as constitutional. I really don't. It, it, it violates all tenets, really, of our uh, system, our Anglo uh, justice system. And, um, you know, I, I, what do you think is going to happen with that case? Do you think it's going to be delayed? Yeah. Do you think there's going to be a chance that, that we'll have, have it declared unconstitutional by, by January 1? Are we going to have to live with this if, uh, if Pritzker wins for at least a little while? I- uh, I, I don't think you're going to get a decision before November 8th, but I do think you'll get a decision before January 1. And I think you'll, I, I do think 
it's more likely than not that you get a declaratory judgment that the law is written as unconstitutional. It's, it's a poorly written piece of legislation, if you've read it, uh, both in substance as well as in form. Um, and there are the issues that these prosecutors have raised, the constitutional issues they've raised are compelling ones. So I, I think that will happen. But uh, number one, that doesn't mean that the people who were responsible for this shouldn't be held to account on November 8th, because they should be. Even attempting to do this disqualifies you, should disqualify you from public office. Number two, a declaration that is unconstitutional just means that the same authors of this legislation will go back and perhaps work with better attorneys to craft language that is similar, but perhaps would pass constitutional muster that will have you know, substantially the same effect. I mean, it, as you've heard from the authors of the legislation, they are proud of this. They, they're not walking this back. They're not uh, agreeing to proposed changes or even contemplating proposed changes. Yeah. So don't think for a minute that if you don't change out the power structure of this state, starting with the executive, starting with the governor, that you're not going to get in some form or fashion what you're hearing from prosecutors that the Safety Act promises. Don't think that for a second. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You know, the Zucker brothers give us more and better ideas on dealing with crime than do Democrat socialist politicians. I was just thinking about Naked Gun. Yeah. When reading this editorial in the FLCIO NPR Times, formerly known as the Sun-Times. Thank you. Carjackings can be stopped if automakers step up. Right then. That's Tom Dart's new big idea, along with Ro Khan, to stop carjackings in Cook County. Automakers need to come up with an integrated hotline so that cars, once they've been jacked, can be more readily traced. And, of course, um, the caveat that the uh, red diaper babies over at the AFL-CIO NPR Times offers, of course, there'd also have to be a commitment to ensure that automakers or the government would not use this data or this ability to trace to track people's movements and so on and so forth. No, of course. No, Why I would, would never we do that. have any privacy concerns when it comes to the government and big automakers that are beholden to the government? Why why would anybody worry about that? But I mean I just love the idea I mean it's it's I think of Naked Gun and the anti graffiti program, Naked Gun, where they're you know the kids are graffitiing the walls and then the walls open up and they shoot paint at the kids. Um, you're, that's that's great to protect a particular asset or to find an asset, but I think you're missing a key step, and that is to hold the people who are committing acts of violence or uh, destroying private property, which is, is an act of violence, carjacking certainly. Acts of violence. I think you're you're missing the point about holding the individuals to account for what they've done. That seems to be absent from the conversation, uh, at least as it pertains to these defund the police, decarceration, law enforcement officers, if you can believe it, like Tom Dart 
And um, don't tell me he isn't because he is in with the power structure in the city and this is the way it's going. Have you heard Tom Dart say a crossword about Pritzker's purge law? No, you haven't. Why? Because he's part of the power structure that's responsible for the disintegration of the city and the state. That's why. And he doesn't for more about yeah, who feeds them. Yeah, for more on this, uh, New York has a similar problem, and it's generating an interesting political response, potentially. We were just talking about it before the break. Pleased to be joined again by Chris Whalen. He's an investment banker, chairman of Whalen Advisors, author of Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise, and he's also the editor of the Institutional Risk Analyst. Chris, thanks for joining us, Ken. Appreciate it. Good morning. Greetings from Nashville. Oh, from Nashville. Oh, you moved. Uh, have you abdicated? No, no. no I'm frolicking uh, at the annual meeting at the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association, which is a, a quiet That's meeting. a raucous group. Yeah. Well, it can be. We don't have the brokers with us, so they're, they're even more raucous. <laughs> um, no, they're wonderful. They're, they're the ultimate embodiment of American entrepreneurship. They're salespeople that work 80 hours a week. And they party hard too. So, well, uh, so then, what's the scuttlebutt about the housing market since you're in the mix there? Well, it's contracting. Um, we did a piece in the blog this morning that talks about the mark-to-market losses that banks and other investors are facing as as interest rates go up. Obviously, the price of securities and loans goes down. So uh, the Fed is imposing a huge hit on the financial world. It could be trillions of dollars in unrealized losses. And the real question is, you know, the economists now are talking about a reset of interest rates. In other words, we're going to get back up where we were 10, 15 years ago and stay there. So everything that we created, especially the last few years during COVID, these securities have very low coupons. I have a 3% mortgage, you know, and my wife, who's a doll that works in finance. She said, oh, we have to pay the mortgage off. And I looked at her, I said, no, I'm going to die. You're going to be laughing and paying this mortgage. You're going to keep it forever. And the reality is many of those COVID era mortgages may never be in the money for refinance. In other words, they're already so low, they'll just sit there. And that means those people will have an incentive to stay in the house. Okay. So it's not going to help home affordability. And remember, as rates go up and home purchases fall, what goes up? Rent. Because people can't afford to buy, so they rent. So there's some very difficult things going on here for the Fed. You know, balancing all this out, how do you do that? I have no idea. But I heard that the, and once they get up to 8%, you know, 8% for a 30-year fix, that they may never go back down. Are you hearing the same? Well, uh, two things. Number one, uh, we're actually way over eight right now, okay? okay. The, bond, the bond market moves faster than the lenders. You know, lenders decide what the coupon is on your mortgage when they're talking to you, right? But then they have to go sell that loan into the bond market, which is very different. So I would tell you most lenders today are at least half a point to three quarters of a point too low because they want to make loans. They're competing with a market that still has big overcapacity in terms of lenders. So we gotta get rid of every third lender before we can tighten up price, but that means we'll be close to 10% in the first quarter. If the Fed does 75 in November, 75 in December, that easily gets my forward Fannie Mae 
up to seven and a half, maybe seven and three quarters. And then I add a point and three quarter for the fees and the servicing and everything else. So I'm in the nines. Okay. That's where we will be February, March. It just, you know, there's a lag. That's what I'm saying to you, especially when you have rising rates and falling volumes. Because part of that lag. Stay in business. Yeah. Well, and part of that lag then is, is, uh, is employment or unemployment and the expectation oh, yeah. that you're going, you're going to see, uh, un, you're going to see unemployment spike uh, significantly in the next several months. Yes. And I'll tell you, unfortunately and tragically, a lot of them will be mortgage bankers and realtors and other people who were pulled into the housing market during 20 and 21 when Jay Powell had rates at zero. And now we're going back the other way. So we, we have this, this whipsaw that ultimately comes from the Humphrey Hawkins law, uh, the, the, you know, impossible balance between employment and inflation. So, you know, I think at some point, if we, if we see a Republican Congress, it would be really good to take a look at that again. It's a 50-year-old law, and it's about time that we reassess it because the, the, the private sector is getting a kicking here, guys. And they can only take so much volatility. But think about running a business right now when you've got to lay off a third of your people in the next 90 days to survive. And by the way, you can't hedge interest rates for your loans. It's, it's a waste of time right now uh, because of the market volatility. Uh, the banks are all sitting on big losses. REITs, keep your eyes on the REITs because they show you the decline in the book value that's caused by the Fed. So that's, you know, there's a lot going on here. And I hope they stop, by the way, at the end of the year. The Fed really needs to pause and look at their work because every central bank in the world is tightening. Well, uh, and, and so even the what, French, what is Christine Lagarde. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. All, all of the, the mystics moving in uh, unison as they're wont to do. Um, yeah, he, we should have uniforms so, so for them, Dan. We, we really should, yeah. We, the Illuminati. Yeah, something, something uh, in the Kim Jong Un line, I think, would be appropriate. <laughs> um, so, what do you think then about the depth of this recession? I mean, this is the thing that you know all the the, uh, the finance panjan drums are trying to figure out, and and mm-hmm. part of the question it seems is whether or not there's going to be an earnings recession, and we should start seeing some evidence of that with these with the earnings season now upon us, if, if there is going to be an earnings recession, what's your handle? Uh, well, first off, the year-over-year comparisons with last year for most companies are useless, again, because of what the Fed did to the market. The banks look great. The trading investment banking was extraordinary because they pulled a couple of years' worth of activity into one year. That's what the Fed right. does. They pulled tomorrow into today, right? So... I would tell you earnings are still okay, and I'm actually moderately bullish. I think the U.S. economy, again, as it did during COVID, is going to surprise everyone, and it's the private sector. Uh, The government is, frankly, more of a problem uh, than a help at the moment because every regulator you can think of, especially the bank guys, uh, remember what happened with Jamie Dimon during the stress tests, okay? They want them all to raise capital to compensate for the Fed. I mean, this is insanity. We have to focus on reducing the swings in monetary policy so we don't destroy the economy in the process, right? 
So are we going to have collateral damage this year in terms of recession and everything else? Yes. But I do think that, you know, even getting Fed funds up to 4 or 5% is not the end of the world. It will actually help the financial system to have more cash flow when savers can earn something on their money and when corporate savers and banks and pension funds get paid, right? Rates were too low. And what we saw in the last cycle, I think, was that lenders at certain points just say, eh, why should I bother? I could just keep my money at the Fed. And I think that's a very valid uh, argument, by the way, as economists have been writing about for many years. So, yeah, will we have a recession? Hurt. Yes. But it won't be as bad as all the uh, chicken littles are saying, Dan. And so, so how bullish are you on the Fed's projection about uh, drawing down inflation with these uh, rate hikes? Like no, we're gonna I, be I back think and we're gonna be, they're going to be cutting again by the summer. No, no, no. No, the pivot, no, we're not going to pivot. We're going to probably stay at at least current levels or higher. Like I said, at a, at another 100 basis points to Fed funds, you know, they'll raise the target 75 and 75, I believe. And then you're pretty close to five. And the whole yield curve at that point, you know, we're going to have tens up near a five. But remember, the whole curve is still a little inverted. It's kind of flat and strange if you look at it on a computer. So it's, you know, it's saying to you recession. That's what the bond market is saying. And that's why the equity guys are fucking. But really, so we just could be, just go just, sideways for a year. You know, well, honestly, my portfolio is mean, not moving much. It came down a bit, but, you know, only the high beta stuff like NVIDIA and, you know, sexy things, right? Energy's been great, and the banks have kind of gotten to a floor. I don't think the big guys are going to go a lot lower. Because investors come in and buy it. And they buy a 10-year treasury, by the way, with a 4% yield. There's a lot of buyers for that offshore. Yeah. So, you know, it's not the end of the world, guys. There's always this fuss in the economics profession because they think, oh, my God. But no, we'll adjust. It's just going to be painful. Investors are going to see a lot of their book value that they thought they had two years ago uh, disappear. And a lot of if they want to stay in these games, they're going to have to spend capital this year. The big question in the back of everybody's mind about recession is credit. Well, then on, on the consumer side, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that the prices that people are paying for groceries and at the pump, you may expect those to stay high or you know high as compared to previous norms. Expect them to stay more or less where they're at for the foreseeable future. Yeah, regrettably. I, I think in some cases, like building supplies has certainly quieted down compared to a year ago, two years ago. Um, and it's just case by case. And that's why the Fed really can't do much about this. It's structural. It's market. Uh, you hear the term supply chain all the time, which is true. And then, you know, half the world's been disrupted uh, by the Russian uh, Ukraine war, as far as food goes. And then we have this business in China where I think Xi Jinping is, you know, headed for Mao land, and he's going to crush the private sector in China. And they, and they don't care. They don't think of it that way. You know, he is the father figure. No one, uh, no one uh, differs with the father. And uh, they were walking a guy out there in the Communist Party Congress. They literally walked somebody out on TV. It was yeah, the former PM. 
Right. And uh, what was they uh, said that he wasn't feeling well? Uh-huh. Well, they decided he wasn't feeling well, or what was the real story behind that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but think about the fact that they actually allowed him on the floor, yeah. and it wasn't scripted. And then somehow or another, he had come into disfavor. You know, remember, this is still a Confucian system, even though they call themselves communists. It's, uh, it's very strange. But I think they're going to crash. I really do. China goes through these cycles where they import capital for a while and look great, and all the foreign investors come, and then they, they dash everyone's hopes, and that's what's going on right now. That's going to be an interesting factor for large investors, uh, I think, for the next year. What do you do with China? You know, you run away? But before we let you go, I want to uh, end where we started, which is on crime and um, your uh, home away from Nashville in New York. And, and um, yeah. you know, the, the, the violent crime spikes in, I mean, really, per, the, the, most of the major cities in this country and what kind of economic impact that ultimately has as people, frankly, relocate from those major cities. Oh, I'm there. You know that. I'm at the top of Westchester County now. I could just walk north to the family homeland of Poughkeepsie if I have to. Um, but, you know, look, I, I'll give you a big headline from Mayor Adams from this program. Big question. Will the Mortgage Bankers Association do their secondary conference at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square again? Because we had so many problems with people being assaulted and oh. badgered outside of the hotel. You know, and it, it's gotten bad, Dan. A lot of my colleagues will not stay in New York City anymore, okay? And these are people who run national firms. So Mayor Adams and the leadership of that town, I don't know who they are, uh, better think long and hard. Because if they start losing anchor clients like that, then they're in big trouble. You know, that event brings thousands and thousands of people to Times Square for five days. Um, And you can't lose events like that. But that's what's happening in New York because of the violence. You're dead right. And people are, it's not that the residents aren't reacting, they are, but the politics are poisonous right now. It's very similar to Chicago. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. He is Chris Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Advisors, author of Ford Men from Inspiration Enterprise, and editor of the Institutional Risk Analysis. Chris, have fun and be safe in Nashville. <laughs> just have fun. Nashville's <laughs> just fine. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, it's time for our weekly contact with Ted Dabrowski. But I, I wanted to reference this Walter Russell Mead piece in the Wall Mead piece in the Wall Street Journal, talking about Britain's decline and the disconnect between British society generally and its political leadership. Listen to what Walter Russell Mead wrote and see if this um, strikes uh, any comparison in your mind. Britain isn't failing, but its politicians and diplomats are. For all the dynamism of its entrepreneurs, bankers, artists, and academics, Britain has steadily lost ground to European and Asian economic competitors. Genteel economic decline may not be what most Brits want, but it's the natural inevitable outcome of the policies they prefer. 
The mismatch between Britain's international ambitions and its domestic policy preferences has haunted the country ever since Clement Attlee's Labour government introduced major socialist changes to keep the British economy while attempting to keep Britain a global power. I thought that was so interesting because it reminds me of the disconnect in our fair state of Illinois between the dynamism in so many sectors as compared to the political leadership that we have Liz Trusses and Rishi Sunaks and not the Churchills and Thatchers that would be commensurate with the dynamic leadership we have in other sectors. And the net net of it is that we fall under the weight of the mediocre, ineffectual political leadership. Ted Zabrowski, wirepoints.com. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. What do you think about that uh, Britain versus Illinois comparison, this disconnect, but the politics make it impossible to reconnect? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty good. Of course, we always get trapped into that whole thing of, well, you know, who puts the politicians there? So it's the people, too. So it's a, it's a real kind of a confusing mess. And Illinois is, I think, a perfect example of, of that mess. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the reason a lot of us fight for, for Illinois and, and, and for Chicago is because this, you know, this place and its potential is, is absolutely amazing, not only going forward, but we know what it's been in the past. But, um, you know, a lot of the policies that, that have been put in place and, and, you know, the people have elected these people uh, have been horrendous. And, and, you know, right now we have before us Amendment 1, this workers' rights thing, which, which could be the ultimate nail in the coffin for, for Illinois. And uh, our politicians put it on the ballot. Our government unions asked for it, and so did our, our private sector unions. They, they asked for it. And the ironic thing is, is it, it might be the very people of Illinois who, <clears throat> who put it in place. So, um, well, what exactly will do? Nail in the coffin. You know, they keep saying on November 8th, vote yes for workers' rights. What exactly is this amendment about? No, this, this amendment is not about workers' rights. It's, it's um, you know, that's why it's, it's ironic. The workers' rights amendment blocks right to work. For private sector workers, so it blocks workers' freedom, but it's really about giving the government unions the most powers in the country by far over taxpayers. No state would, would give its its government unions such power over taxpayers, and, and you know that can only mean two things: you know, much higher property taxes and fewer fewer parents' rights when it comes to places like school districts, because the unions will have virtually monopoly powers on on just about everything. You know, it's an interesting thing about that. Um... Uh, Amendment 1, the implications of it. I know we don't really focus so much on consequences as a a general rule with this electorate because um, we prefer to believe the beautiful lies. But one of the things that would seem to me that this does or undoes is the prohibition against uh, first responders striking because that's statutory and the constitutional provision would trump the statute. So, uh, yes, you could still make the same deals in collective bargaining agreements, but you wouldn't have state law that necessarily prohibits police and firefighter unions from striking. And wouldn't that be an interesting environment when you have leadership like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago and perhaps you're operating under a relatively lawless conditions per state laws like the safety act i mean it, it's it's a fascinating point dan and uh you know pe- people people will choose to ignore it i think even even the supporters of of the act but yeah this is one of those things where today it's illegal for our police and fire unions uh, groups to, to strike but under this amendment one 
uh, those laws are thrown aside. The unions would have the power to collectively bargain over whatever it covers their economic welfare and safety. I put those in quotes. And uh, sure, you know, uh, you can you can imagine a police force or a fire firefighter force saying, "We don't feel safe anymore. You're not protecting us." And you know, it could turn to the point where it gets very nasty, very ugly. And uh, you know, you could see weak weak governments, weak cities saying, "Okay, you guys, we'll bargain. We'll let you strike if if so and so and so and so." So some kind of trade off. Can you imagine having our, our, our police or our firefighters striking? Um, no big deal. Just I'm hire all the social workers. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, social just, workers. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, and and you know, and, and you know, we see what we see what the Chicago Teachers Union will do. Oh, yeah. You know, five times in the last ten years, they've walked out. So you know, the, the police have a pretty ugly condition right now. So it wouldn't be surprising to them to see them fight back. Speaking of students, a lot of parents are concerned about COVID nineteen vaccines being on the child immunization list in order for your kids to go to school. Uh, where do you think? I mean, Pritzker's been dodging the media pretty well the past four days uh where do you think he's gonna land on this one or do you think he'll just keep avoiding the media until two weeks from now to the election yeah i think i think he'll probably just keep avoiding the media on this one um you know he hasn't done that well overall in the media and and you know so many things are coming out safety act and other things uh you know this highest unemployment rate in the country you know the worst job performance in the country uh there's a lot of bad stats he probably you know should stay away from the covid stuff but um of course, if he, if he if he if he has to get into it, he has to support it. It would go right in line with everything else he said. Why would he, you know, why would he not, you know, demand or in some way force more vaccinations on children? But, uh, you know, that that's one that drives me crazy. Given everything we know about children, COVID, and vaccinations, it is uh, it's it's uh, horrible. How could he not? How could he not support it? I mean, given his rhetoric for the last three years, given the uh, the the, you know national record in most consecutive emergency executive orders how could he not support it he has to support it yeah yeah you know he's, he's done his 35th consecutive 30 day or 28 day whatever it is uh uh you know disaster proclamations and, and and you know requiring vaccinations to kids and you know the unions want it you know the teachers unions want it so um he'd have to support it I, that's why i say the only way he can avoid it is just by hiding but uh yeah he'll he'll support it 100 percent uh if he's if he's uh, the um Speaking of, of schools, uh, WirePoints is out with a new report about uh, academic performance. Remember? Oh, yeah. Remember that? That's what the schools are supposed oh. to be about, academics. Um, and uh, we know nationally the numbers are terrible, the NAEP scores. What did you find with respect to Illinois? Well, so we, we ran the Illinois numbers. And, you know, the State Board of Education and, and the Tribune and, you know, the, the, the press for, for, the, for the government – uh, has already started to say the 2022 numbers, which Illinois reports, will come out um, this week. And, you know, they're already messaging that it's all about growth. And, you know, forget about absolute levels of education. Forget if they can read or not. The question is, can they, are they getting better? That's, that's going to be their big pitch. It's all about growth. But um, we wanted to put in the record uh, what 2021 looked like versus 2019. And, and it's an absolute collapse. And, you know, a lot of that had to do, of course, with the most uh, draconian uh, COVID mitigations in the country. But the bottom line, what we, what we, you know, it's amazing. It's kind of easy, actually. What this data says that in 2021, one out of every 10 black children could read a grade level across the entire system. One out of every 10. Uh, two out of every 10 Hispanic children could read at a, a grade level. And three out of every 10 children in Illinois statewide could read at grade level. One, two, three. Those are horrific results. Uh, I don't understand how we can keep a school system open 
where just one out of every 10 black kids can read at grade level, two out of every 10 Hispanic kids can read at grade level, and three out of every student can read at grade level. They, they need to be totally deconstructed, and school choice is really, I mean, when you come down to it, there's nothing to fix these systems anymore. They're unfixable. And the only way to really get out of this is, is you know, it's a, it's a universal school choice program. There's, there's no other way out. I feel like yes, the politicians have to pay for what they did. You know, I mean, I just, and that's why you look at these numbers, look at him dodging that question. I think it's it's just clear cut that people should vote. Even if they've never voted for a Republican in their life, they should do so in two weeks from today. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Pritzker, this, I think this is my biggest beef with, with Pritzker and a lot of others. You know, you can you can be a politician, you can campaign, you can be positive, but Governor Pritzker never acknowledges just how dire everything is in Illinois. And he doesn't like anybody to, to, to call it out. And, you know, that's why he calls them names. He calls them carnival barkers or whatever, grifters. Um, he, he will not acknowledge these facts. And that's the big failure because you can't fix a problem if you don't acknowledge there's a problem in the first place. Ted Dabrowski, President, WirePoints.com, all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It looks like we have inflation at the border as well, at least uh, by the numbers coming in for both the month of September and fiscal year 2022. Uh, Bill Malugan reporting for our friend Brett Baer on Fox News yesterday. The numbers reveal there were more than 227,000 migrant encounters in September, the highest September in DHS history and the equivalent of two full-capacity University of Michigan football stadiums. Fiscal year 2022 ended with nearly 2.4 million migrant encounters. That's equivalent to the population of Houston, and it's the highest fiscal year ever recorded, not including 600,000 known gotaways in the year. There were also 98 Border Patrol arrests of suspects on the FBI's terror watch list in fiscal year 2022. That's nearly quadruple the previous five fiscal years combined. And Brett, CBP sources tell Fox News a staggering 856 migrants died here at our southern border in fiscal year 2022. That is the highest number ever recorded. Yet another record shattered. Uh, that's uh, quite a record the Biden administration has put up on the border. 900 migrants dead, uh, almost 100 individuals on the FBI terrorist watch list arrested, five times the uh, the total from the previous five years combined. Is that what he said? And enough encounters in just the month of September to fill two Michigan football games? Or what does that translate to? That would be about 12 Northwestern football games. <laughs> and $2.3 million in total for fiscal year 2022. Uh, this is why uh, – Immigration is the ice in the ice issues that are informing the November 8th election. Immigration, crime, and economy. 
and uh, all of those numbers are being inflated. Prices, violent crime, and lawlessness at the border. For more on this, please to be joined by Congressman Brian Stile from just north of the Cheddar Curtain there in Kenosha. Brian, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on. How about those numbers from the border? It's unbelievable what the Biden administration has done with regards to the border. What we continue to see is they're putting out a global call that the U.S.-Mexico border is not secure. And the results speak for themselves. People are coming, making the arduous journey uh, across Mexico into the United States of America. And the result is a lack of security. You noted it correctly. We have individuals on the terror watch list who are walking into the United States. We continue to see fentanyl pour across the border and come into communities like Chicago or Kenosha uh, up a little further north. And what we need to do is dramatically change course. Yet you have the Biden administration saying that they're going to hire 87,000 IRS agents. I'd say let's hire 87,000 Border Patrol agents. And you have um, those are the individuals that were caught. You know, you had 600,000 getaways. And so for the uh, more sophisticated person who aims to do this country or people in it harm, um, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to embed in hundreds of thousands of getaways from Border Patrol. And I've been down to the U.S.-Mexico border a handful of times. I was most recently down there just a few months ago. And when you talk to the Border Patrol agents, they are so frustrated with the Biden administration, with their lack of concern from the Biden administration. And you're exactly right. We're tallying, and the numbers that are often shared, the 2.3 million, is related to the people that have mostly voluntarily turned themselves in. There's countless others likely hundreds of thousands of others who've evaded uh, our Border Patrol agents. And when you start to think about your level of concern, you're exactly right. Those that voluntarily turn themselves in and try to work their way through a broken uh, immigration system, that's one. But we also have folks that are coming in and attempting to evade capture. Those are often uh, the most dangerous uh, individuals. In particular, uh, when we look at high-speed car chases, et cetera, down in the U.S.-Mexico border. Have you had any asylum seekers sent to your congressional district? We have not to the state of Wisconsin in a formal matter at this time, but that doesn't mean that there aren't folks that are making their way all across the United States of America. When you realize that there are north of 2 million people that came across the U.S.-Mexico border last year, it tells you that these folks uh, are all across the United States of America. There hasn't been a busload. Uh, that's come up, but they, they, uh, the, these folks are, uh, you know, all over. Uh, and it's one of the things that we need to make sure that we're addressing here uh, the moment we take the speaker's gavel away from Nancy Pelosi. So how can you do that? How can, even if you had both chambers, Republicans, that is, how, what is it that Republicans should and can do? You know, we're not going to have all the tools in the toolkit because we're not going to hold the presidency, but we got a lot of power. One, what we need to do is actually hold Secretary Mayorkas accountable. We need to have hearings and shine sunlight on the disaster that's occurring at Homeland Security. And two, Republicans will have power of the purse. We're going to actually have the ability to set spending priorities inside of the, the next major fiscal bills that go through. So not only should we be concerned about controlling the top line number, but we should be concerned about making sure that our priorities, border security, are in the funding bills going forward. How is crime doing in your congressional district? What are the stats? Oh, it's, it's, it's impacting everybody. And, we, you know, you, you reference Kenosha, and we see you guys talk often about the Safety Act uh, and the disaster that's playing out in Illinois. That impacts 
the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we sit, obviously, just north of the border. And as the decisions that are being made in Illinois, they have direct ramifications for us. Uh, but we also have challenges in cities like Milwaukee, uh, where crime is running rampant. And we have liberal prosecutors that are allowing our courthouse to turn into a revolving door uh, rather than a mechanism to actually hold criminals accountable to make our community safe again. And so you've got uh, two statewide races that are important. Uh, the the Senate race, obviously, Ron Johnson's reelection, and then uh, the Michaels versus Evers race. So give us a handle on, on those races and what's informing, uh, in, informing those two contests. So in the state of Wisconsin, we have Madison and Milwaukee, which are the big Democratic turnout bases. They're going to turn out. We know that. The question is, can we get our folks in communities like Kenosha and Racine uh, in in more conservative areas in our state uh, to pour out in record numbers in support of Ron Johnson and Tim Michaels? I'm actually confident that we're going to do that. The polling indicates that we have a little bit of momentum now at our back, but that's no solace. It's now is the time to make sure that folks uh, in Wisconsin and across the country are ready to go, ready to vote two weeks from today. And so uh, Evers has a record, and uh, it's a pretty liberal one, even for, you know, the La Follette uh, Wisconsinites there. Um, Mandela Barnes, though, I mean, he has made some wild statements, and it seems to me that Ron Johnson and Republicans there have done a pretty good job of, uh, you know, attaching consequences to the statements that he's made that are anti-law enforcement and anti-law and order. Absolutely. When you look at the record of Mandela Barnes, who's running against our U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, his statements are all you have to show people, which actually makes the job for Ron Johnson a little bit easier. You just can roll the tape and allow Mandela Barnes to speak. And when people see what he stands for, he's part of the far progressive left. He'd be a vote in favor of all the radical policies that we're seeing from Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. People are frustrated and are going to realize that Ron Johnson is the direction that we need to take our country. And uh, with respect to the other major concern for voters this midterm election, uh, prices, you know, inflation, loss of purchasing power, diminished quality of life. What's the uh, House Republican answer on that? Well, the answer is to get inflation under control. And the way that we do that is we address reckless spending. These trillion dollar bills that continue to come forward need to be ended immediately. Two, we need to unleash American energy. People aren't just paying for that at the gas pumps. People are paying for that when they're going to be heating their homes this winter as the weather just dropped dramatically. And then you also pay for it at the grocery store. Far too often people forget it's a diesel tractor in the fields harvesting this time of year, and it's a diesel truck bringing your goods to the grocery store. If we unleash American energy, we get spending under control, and we right-size our labor policies to help workers who are still on the sidelines and get them back to work, we can have a dramatic and meaningful impact on bringing costs down for families so that they can afford the things that they need. And people don't realize there's still grocery shortages and there's still a baby formula outage. I mean, I went to, I've been, I grocery shop a lot because I have a lot of children. And um, everywhere I go, I check and make sure if there's enough baby formula. That really, you know, Biden said that that was going to get resolved and it has not been resolved at all. Amy, this is the incompetence of the administration. We continue to see the disconnect between Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and the Democratic left and the reality and the challenges that people are facing. People are facing the exact shortages you're talking about. They're facing the rising prices. They're seeing higher crime. 
And the Democrats in Washington, D.C. want to bury their head in the sand and ignore the problems that are impacting people. That's the reason that I'm optimistic that come two weeks from today, we're going to see conservatives pour out. We're going to see independents realize that conservatives have answers to the challenges of the day. Uh, And I think we're setting ourselves up for a big night if our folks come out and vote in two weeks. He is Brian Stile, Republican congressman from Wisconsin's first. That's right over the border in Kenosha. Brian, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We have uh, outtakes from uh, Dick Bigger. Uh, Dick Bigger, of course, is the Henderson County farmer who's endorsed Susanna Mendoza. I'm not making it up. He's in a commercial. No. Uh, and, and these yeah. are his outtakes. He's wearing overalls in front of his John Deere. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get it done, trying to nail the line, Dan. Uh, this is on Susanna Mendoza's YouTube channel. Meet Dick Bigger, one of her more <laughs> more prodigious supporters, if you will. Susanna Mendoza. Hold it. This tiny lady. <laughs> this tiny lady got rid. Re- this tiny lady got rid of Illinois' huge. Unpaid backlog robot. I'm Dick Bigger. Backlog. Backlog. And he's adjusting his overall. This tiny lady got rid of Illinois' big, huge backlog of unpaid bills. (laughs) He's snapping his overalls now. This tiny lady. Yeah, one more time. Rid of Illinois' Huge backlog of bills. Yeah, pretty good, Dick. A bigger. Uh, yeah, look, he seems like a jaunty fellow. Uh, we'll effort outtakes from Amanda Hug and Kiss, Buck Naked, <laughs> Maya P. Niss, and others who have endorsed Susanna Mendoza as well uh, uh, for Comptroller. They had to have known her. Do you think they just didn't know? They didn't know what? what the, his name? What do you mean? Dick Bigger? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's what's, a common name, right? In what's the big County? deal? Yes. Yeah, traditional spelling. Oh, what's that? I don't I don't get it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, November 8th, uh, we have efforting to bring you the uh, candidates and the key races so you get familiarity with them. And even if you're not in their particular district, say if they're running for Congress, Obviously, they have impact as a member of, in this case, the House Republican Caucus, were they to be elected, and the policies you would like to see affected at the federal level. So we're pleased to be joined again by Regan Deering, who I'm sure is very happy about this lead-in to her interview. Uh, Regan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for having me on. Um, all right. So just to refresh everyone's recollection, you're uh, to a newly created district per the remap. Um, you are a first time candidate uh, running as you're the Republican nominee for uh, for the position, which is uh, Congress. And uh, it's uh, central to Metro East, Central Illinois down to Metro East is the district, basically. Yeah, the newly mapped Illinois 13th, which, by the way, got an F-minus in gerrymandering. 
All you have to do is take one look at the map and know that Democrats had a very clear agenda in picking up this seat um, for their party uh, come this election cycle. And we're really putting on a charge, um, just standing up against their you know, hand-picked insider who's come direct from Washington. So, yep, that's central and southern Illinois, uh, the 13th district. Yeah, it's not just for Chicagoland. Uh, Nikki Budzinski is the uh, insider you're referencing. She's the Democrat Socialist nominee. She's a Biden administration official. She was. And she's railing against dark money in politics. She wants to get the dark money out of politics and apparently get it out of politics and directly into her pocket. Can you explain this uh, report about her $500,000 in consulting fees uh, from insiders that she otherwise pretends to rail against sure so we recently last week had an article come out from better governance association questioning um the over half a million dollars she has made between leaving governor pritzker's office and beginning work for the biden administration um you know she left and became a private consultant but she had very cozy relationships with a lobbyist while in office giving him uh, her insider information about the governor's schedule and appointments. Uh, she was a senior member of his leadership team, so at the forefront of many conversations about contracts and things. And it just calls into question some of her ethics. Uh, I'm not sure she necessarily broke the law, but you know, in Illinois, we are famous for corrupt uh, insiders and politicians who seem to just skirt around the edge of ethics laws and rules and it's a pretty slippery slope so you know the the article was not by our design it was an independent investigative um, article by the bga and we are in fact just asking her and her team to respond to questions which she's done in basic statements saying i'm not a lobbyist so it doesn't seem like um she's coming clean to voters and she's asking them to now send her to washington dc and all of a sudden she's going to be different well, she she's not a lobbyist. Well, what is she? Yeah, what does that mean? How would she describe she was a herself? Consultant. Then? Oh, a consultant. A consultant oh, to oh. a consultant to who? Herself. She was uh, self-employed. She had Budzinski Partners. In, and and it was for had, who were her clients? Well, that's what we're asking. Who oh. are your clients? Did hmm. you did you follow the ethics rules in place for the state and you know getting. Uh, verification for who your clients were going to be. It was very quickly after she left the Pritzker administration. I think she announced she was leaving in February, and she started her business in March. So, you know, it's it's a very cozy timeline, and what we're doing is just asking her to come clean. You know, voters are tired of pay-to-play politics and insider scoop, and that's what's driven this country into a ditch. And, you know, for me, as somebody that's come along as a first-time candidate, you mentioned earlier, I'm tired of it, too. I mean, I didn't get recruited by the party uh, to come and run for this congressional office, but it's an open seat this cycle. And I know that I have been living in my community and working in my community and advocating for success for all. And it's about time we get uh, people with common sense and real-world experience who are going to step away from their life, go to Washington, you know, make good policy, and then come back and live by the rules that they have set. Well, what was your final straw when you're like, you know what, I'm going to run? Well, um, pretty early on um, in this last school year, I didn't really decide to run until January of this year. Um, You know, I've been personally fighting against the governor and his executive overreach. You know, I have a parent of three teenagers, and Mm -hmm. I was just standing up uh, during the COVID lockdowns and shutdowns and keeping our kids out of school. And 
I mean, what are we into his 35th executive order now? Um, and so, you know, I was standing up for myself. I wasn't getting the response I wanted from my individual school board. And so we joined the lawsuit against the governor and we got a great win. And I think probably coming from that was so many people in my community who said, thank you for standing up. Thank you for, thank you for putting your name on the line. Um, you know, a lot of people, I had a small business in town. I didn't want to be affiliated with that. Or I have a spouse that works in the school system. We need good people to stand in that gap um, who are willing to take the slings and arrows and stand up for what's right. So I think the response from that and watching, um, you know, the justice system work and the people get a win really kind of motivated me to, to run for this higher office as well. And and this, uh, your opponent, uh, Ms. Budzinski, uh, so she went from, Pritzker's office to work in the Office of Management and Budget under Biden? Yes, she did. She was his chief of staff. So she was directly responsible for his vision and his plan, which is crushing, you know, families all across not only Illinois and this country, but every bad policy, every reckless spending, overbloated bill that's come out of this administration was put right to task from her. The Office of Management and Budget is the, you know, the first step of those dollars out the door. Right. So so and so she's I'm sure she fancies herself a bit of a fiscal policy expert. So um, she had to be involved with the attempt to increase the income tax in Illinois, which was rejected by voters before covid uh, under mm-hmm. Pritzker. Yeah. And then they leveled her up to D.C. to, uh, uh, you know, quadruple quintuple prices at the pump and at the grocery store, which is the result of Biden era policies. So tax and Spend and spend, yeah, and literally, and yeah, rinse and repeat, right? Scale and scale, yeah, it. I mean, scale it nationally, yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, it's it was very obvious, um, even from bipartisan advisors, that this spending was going to lead to inflation. And here we are seeing the effects. I mean, she's not shying away from saying that she worked for both of those administrations, so clearly, voters don't need to give her a second chance to go back and have even more power. So so just on this this uh, 500 grand in consulting fees, um, I mean, is this something that should be the province of like the uh, inspector general's office at the state level or, or what do you think? Well, there's certainly an opportunity for us to file a complaint or someone to be filing a complaint because it does skirt skirt the lines. I mean, Avery Bourne in the um, presser yesterday very clearly laid out some questions specifically, um, you know, communications she had um, with lobbyists or with those while she was in her office. You know, we can talk about uh, complaint filing with uh, the Secretary of State or the OEIG. And, you know, we have state ethics laws in place for a reason. Uh, People are tired of, (laughs) you know, the shenanigans. And, you know, if you're going to ask voters to believe in you and your um, who you're going to work for, which is supposed to be the people, I think she should she should come clean and she should have a press conference about it. If she has nothing to hide, then there will not be a problem. That's a lot of money. Um, to tell us a little bit about this district, because I think you know, people in Chicagoland think everything south of Taylor Street is, uh, you know, is very conservative and it's um, um, and, and, and so forth. And and it's it's just more complicated than that. You know, conservative Democrats and Republicans, and that's where the Trump voters live and so on and so forth. But it's complicated. It's more complicated than that. Although Budzinski, your opponent, seems like she's pretty far left of almost any place uh, south of I-80 in Illinois. 
Yeah, she's she's claiming to be a moderate. I mean, they definitely mapped this district for her. I mean, she Pritzker was in fact of the you know in charge of the legislature when these maps came out. We all remember he ran on the promise of fair maps, and we didn't see that come to bear when he actually was elected. And so, you know, the state legislature and the governor quite obviously drew this map for her. And we've got um, very urban areas. We've got traditional Democratic voting blocks in Champaign-Urbana and the Metro East. And, of course, they have to be contiguous. So everything in between, you know, has a lot of rural, small towns, um, you know, manufacturing. We have a lot of medical facilities. And the actual map was held up in court all the way till December. I'm, I'm fairly confident that the 13th district is one of the reasons that we have a delayed primary from March to June mm. because it was held up in court. It was mapped so badly. I mean, you had Democrats saying, hey, you put all of us into this one very small district. And despite the terrible mapping, it was still only a Democrat leaning three points. And I'm surrounded by Republicans plus 40 points and Republicans plus 20 points wow. in the 15th and the 12th district. So right. it is egregious. Um, you know, we have wonderful people here in central and southern Illinois who want someone to fight for their issues and their values. And Nikki Butzinski is a Chicago and Washington elite. I mean, she is not what we need. She doesn't know um, our priorities. And we're not going to stand for Washington, you know, sending their agenda here into central Illinois instead of sending a representative like me that's going to take our values and our issues to Washington instead. So where can more people get uh, where, where can people go to get more information about your campaign? So our website is Regan, R-E-G-A-N, the number four, congress.com. We have a lot of social media platforms as well, talking about where we're going and where the people can find us, how we can uh, have volunteers join us in door knocking and making phone calls. Um, two weeks, two weeks to go. And, um, you know, we're really rising in our momentum. You know, this article here is putting Nikki Budzinski in the crosshairs of people that know we're tired of um, pay-to-play politics and insiders, and we need to change Washington, and it can start right here in Illinois 13. And this is basically a toss-up race, right? It is. It's basically a toss-up race, absolutely. And it's kind of a sleeper. Um, You know, we had the 15th district, which got a lot of dollars and a lot of media attention, um, with two Republican incumbents mapped in based on this terrible gerrymandering as well. Um, and, you know, now it's coming to the forefront. It's right at the right time. I mean, we have a great opportunity to hang on to this seat for Republicans. And it feels like we're supposed to be on the def- on the offensive, but really we're on the defensive. I mean, everywhere you go, Nikki Budzinski is essentially is presumed to be the incumbent. In polling, I've even seen her name with the little asterisk indicating that she (laughs) is the incumbent. Uh, Let's talk about forcing an agenda. That's how they do it. Uh, She is Regan Deering. Uh, She's the Republican nominee in the 13th, as she was describing. Regan for the number four Congress. Regan4Congress.com is the website if you want to get involved and help her across the finish line November 8th. Regan Deering, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan and Amy. Have a great week. Thanks, you too, and good luck. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. 
Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.